Judaism. But I thought this morning that in thinking of the Christmas story, thinking of the Christmas event of Christ coming into the world, um, it is a great story. You know, the greatest story ever told was Jim Bishop's book about Jesus, uh, not just in his incarnation and his birth, but also in the crucifixion. He termed it the greatest story ever told. And uh, certainly the gospel is a story. It is uh, the good news. It's new stories. You, you tell the story of the, of the news, of God's, God's come in history. God's come and uh, done what is needed to reconcile us to himself. And But yet the, the story of Christ it does not come into... Um, into view uh, out of nothing. It comes into view as the fulfillment of the promises of God. Uh, there's been a lead up to the gospel story that is not just a few days in December leading up to the 25th. It was the story of God's dealings from creation to the time of the incarnation. God preparing uh, the way of the Lord. Not just John the Baptist coming to prepare the way of the Lord, but the scriptures themselves. You remember Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus that it was not necessary for the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory. And then he showed them from the law and the prophets all these things concerning himself. And then he told them later on, as they were all gathered together, that it was necessary for the Christ to have suffered. Um, And he showed them from uh, the law, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms, again, all the things concerning himself, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to enter into his glory. So God was preparing the way of the coming of his son for uh, centuries upon centuries, a millennia, um, in terms of uh, from creation to new creation in a real sense, from uh, the creation of the world in Genesis uh, to the fall to the promise of the coming of um, one who would come to be the deliverer. And so uh, I wanted to just to fine-tune the story a little bit in terms of not just the, gospel, the, the Christmas story, but in terms of the larger story. And sometimes that gets called in uh, modern uh, uh, writings on the subject of um, stories, it's called a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is simply the, the big story. Lots of people today say we're not to have meta-narratives. They would rule out Christianity and the gospel simply because it is this great story. And it is this great story that is explanatory. It helps to explain the human condition. It's the key of understanding the world in which we live when we see it in the light of the large story of the Bible. And, of course, the main way in which the meta-narrative, the big story of the Christian gospel has been explained throughout its history has been in terms of what we normally would categorize as, and I've, I've um, put the um, computer in a way that even people at home could see the blackboard as I write on it this morning, is that you begin, of course, with creation in Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 3, you read the story of the fall, and uh, funny, the blackboard, the, 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 the chalk breaks when I'm writing fall. It's just to demonstrate that we're living in a fallen world. <laughs> so we have creation, fall, and then of course with the coming of Jesus, uh, we have redemption. We have Christ coming to redeem us from our fallen condition and to bring us back to God. And so that's been the main way that we have described the meta-narrative, the big story of, um, of the Bible. And, you know, modern eras, uh, modern writers have tended to just do a little fine-tuning of this picture, not, a, not at all thinking it's incorrect or wrong, it's proper story, uh, understanding. But since you begin with creation, and in Revelation chapter 21... 
and 22, you have the recreation or the new creation. Um, they have fine-tuned it in terms of seeing a creation in Genesis 1, and then the fall being something of a decreation or an uncreation. And so we have a uncreation, let's call it, in which the whole um, creation of God has been sullied. It's been uh, destroyed. It's 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 been ruined. Uh, you see it even in terms of the way in which the flood narrative is described in Genesis chapters eight and nine. That um, what God does is He undoes the creation, even in terms of the way in th- the way that things were created. You look at Genesis one. You see the creation of the of the of of um, the animals in the sea, then the animals on the land, and then finally man. It describes the, the, the flood account as uh, the destruction of those things going in the opposite direction. So being something of a picture of uncreation. First of all, human life is taken away, and then animal life is taken away, and even things in the sea are destroyed in terms of the way in which the flood narrative is described. And so it's seen as an uncreation. And then, of course, in the redemption that Jesus brings in Revelation 21 and 22, you have a, a recreation. Okay? So, you know, that's the way to just keep it a little bit more unified in terms of the fact this is a great story the scripture is unfolding for us. This is the great story that the Bible is telling us that the classic way in which it was described as creation, fall, and redemption has, I won't say it's supplanted. I mean, we still use that, those term, that terminology, but just to fine-tune it a bit, creation, un- uncreation, or decreation, and then a recreation has been the way that uh, uh, scholars today sometimes speak of it. But I, I would like to, in the light of the Christmas story, and taking, again, the Christmas story in the light of the bigger picture of the mega story or the meta narrative, the big story of scripture, even fine tune it further. Uh, Because when you look at the subject of creation, man's creation, as it's described in Genesis chapter 1, let's turn to the account in Genesis chapter 1 and see how this description is laid out for us. Genesis chapter 1, and let's look at the words verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man is image. In what sense is man image? Well, that's a, that's a subject that uh, has been discussed had, uh, quite a bit through the history of the church. In what sense man is the image of God? But then you go on to see that the next thing that's said about it is that let them, that is uh, mankind, uh, man, male and female, as this can be described later, um, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so when you might think of man's function, and a lot of times in ancient stories that would tell about creation, the purpose was not so much to describe the material world in which we live. Where did it all come from? That wasn't really the story. The, the reason that these uh, creation accounts were, were, were formed in the ancient world, it was to describe what things are for. What is their purpose? What is their existence? What is man's purpose in the world? What's its function? And um, I believe that's what is being told here. This matter of man being image of God is to tell us how man functions as the functional image of the God who has dominion over all of his creative works. 
God is Lord. God is King. God has dominion over everything that he has made. And he's made man to be in his image, that upon this earth we would reflect his dominion. We would reflect his lordship, his sovereignty over all things. So man's purpose on earth is to be a king, is to have royal identity as God is king over all creation. So mankind was made to have dominion, authority, kingship over the creation, not to abuse it, not to, uh, not to uh, use it for his own in- interest, but under God's lordship, for God's honor and God's glory, man is to have dominion over the created world. And so you have creation in terms of dominion or kingship that man is created to function in that way. And what happens when the fall comes, not only is there an uncreation, there is a dethroning of man as lord and as king. So man is made to have dominion and then there is a dethroning that is what the fall brings. And um, something that might be interesting to consider is that in the description of the creation account of Genesis 1, you have this note of dominion. It's a principal part of the narrative, of the story of creation. Man is made for dominion, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the rest. Well, after the flood, in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, Turn there, if you will, uh, to Genesis chapter 9, um, when Adam, I'm sorry, Noah and his family come out of the ark. Again, there's been this decreation, actually, yeah, uncreation or, or decreation. There's been the destruction of the created order uh, because of human sin. Uh, we have in, uh, Noah coming out of the ark with his family, and we read that same thing that you have in Genesis 1 when God created man, he said, God blessed them, right? God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, And so God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, just as he did in Genesis 1. So there is the the reiteration of the blessing. God gives the blessing again. God renews the blessing after the flood. And um, he also uh, renews the blessing that was given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, uh, to fill the earth. But notice there's no mention of subduing it. There's no mention of having dominion over it. Uh, In a a fallen state, man has been dethroned. He's no longer the king. Um, Just go into the... Stay out of the lion cage, you know. Don't go amongst the wild beasts. Because it's soon going to be obvious. They're not going to have much of a respect for you. They're going to tear you limb from limb. Because man is not going to be recognized by the lower creation as the king of all that he surveys. Even an insect like a mosquito is going to give us many, many problems. Um, Man is not the king any longer in the way that in an unfallen condition uh, it was designed. And so the original design was man to function as the, the Lord of all that he surveys under God's lordship, but now that no longer exists because of sin. So there's a, a, a dethroning of man. In fact, it goes on to say, the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and over every bird of the heaven and upon everything that creeps. And that's not kingship, having dread. 
Not regard, not respect, not uh, bowing before <laughs> the rightful Lord. Uh, th- these, these animals now become a source of food, and, and they, the, the animals flee, just as the deer tend to flee. I got an interesting deer on the rail trail. Uh, when you come into Wallkill and you walk the rail trail down to uh, Walden, there's a deer that comes out there every morning, a couple of them, and they just stand there right near you. And it's amazing. I guess they've gotten used to the fact that nobody's going to trouble them or bother them, and they're just bold. But most deer are not that way. When the deer come into our yard at home, you come in, you open the door of the car, you slam it, and they look at you and they run. That's how the kingdom of the beasts tend to relate uh, to man. If they're not tearing at us to destroy us, they're running from us uh, because they realize that um, they can easily be a food source uh, for man. But the relationship has changed. Man's relationship to the created order has changed because he's no longer the Lord, because of sin. There's been this dethroning. And then when Jesus comes into the world... Remember what the wise men said. Where is he who was born? What? King of the Jews. He comes as the king. The true and rightful king. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature are sing. And so Jesus comes to what? He comes to, again, reestablish kingdom. Reestablish lordship, reestablish dominion through his death, burial, and resurrection. At his resurrection, he is raised Lord of all. Uh, the, the Pentecostal sermon that Peter preaches in, in Jerusalem, uh, when the Spirit of God comes and the crowd gathers as they hear these people speaking in these tongues, and uh, it was uh, Peter's words that this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. He has raised him. He has seated him upon the throne of the universe. And so Jesus comes in terms of uh, rethroning or re-enthroning. I don't know exactly how you would say it. But he comes to bring back the kingdom. So there is this re-enthronement of mankind in the person of, of Jesus. It's an interesting thing that the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, he draws from all of these passages in Genesis 1, 3, I think, and also 8, um, and also Psalm 8, uh, to draw something of a conclusion about what he calls the world to come. The world to come, the coming world. And Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, you know, we can get into a lot more detail than is need, needful, but just um, look, look with me uh, at the words of um, verse 5. Uh, again, you go back to chapter 1, and Jesus is being contrasted with the angels of God, that to no angel has God given uh, uh, this name that's above every name. The, the, no, to no angel has God uh, said the things he said to his son. He's told the angels to worship him. Um, but to Jesus, he's given dominion and authority and lordship and throne rights. And he says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In chapter 1, he's spoken of the world to come in terms of inheritance in terms of Jesus being the heir of all things. There is inheritance. And what's the inheritance? Well, it's the world that's con- it's purified from sin. It's the world in which the reign of God is reestablished. Again, the whole end of the, the story of the biblical meta-narrative is really expressed well, I think, even in terms of the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, And those three things, the name of God being hallowed, the kingdom of God coming, the will of God being done, 
in the words of the Lord's Prayer, is a prayer that prays that all these things would be on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. So God's kingdom would come upon earth as it is in heaven. And in so doing, the name of God would be hallowed on earth, or set apart and, and worshipped and magnified and glorified on earth as it is in heaven, where all the angels of God have no doubt who's in control, has no doubt that God is Lord of all. And they bow before Jesus and they worship him as Lord, as you see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And then God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a regaining of what was lost through sin. Through sin, God's will is not done on earth as it's done in heaven. Wars and famines and all the brutal things that happen upon in this world is not what God designed the world to be. Because man has lost dominion. Because man is no longer king. Man has been dethroned. Good news though. God's come in the person of Jesus to bring man back to that place of dominion through Jesus death, burial, resurrection through his enthronement we are united to Christ to become kings heirs of God joint heirs with Jesus is how Paul expresses it to be brought back to that place of rulership and dominion over the creation of God and what ultimately will be a new heavens a new earth in which righteousness dwells as scripture holds that forth to us and so he says it's not to angels God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking he's been testified somewhere and he quotes the 8th psalm and psalm 8 is really a creation psalm that speaks of man being given as the creation narrative tells us dominion over the creation what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him for a little while lower than the angels crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet and that's speaking of Genesis chapter 1 that's, that's the way God drew it up at the beginning man in creation is to have dominion now I'm putting everything in subjection to him that is to humanity he left nothing outside his control yet at present we don't see everything subject to him and again, go into the lines then if you have any questions about that. But we do see him, verse 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. But by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And um, that ultimately, he, in, in verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom um, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. So we're going to be restored to that place of glory. Because Jesus was achieved that place of glory. Jesus has triumphed. And Jesus is Lord of all. And Jesus has gone into the presence of God for us. To intercede for us. And ultimately we're going to be in God's presence. In a new heavens. In a new earth. In the presence of the returning and glorified Christ. And we're going to be restored to glory. So this is the restoration of glory uh, through the Lord Jesus. So again, the picture of uh, the, 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 the narrative of Scripture is dominion, loss of dominion, regaining of dominion. You all with me on that? That's where the Old Testament picture comes in. The regaining of dominion and the loss of dominion is pictured for us in Genesis chapter 1 as that dominion has now been assumed by that foul serpent that came into the garden and is now and has tempted the woman and through him, the fall of the man. And now 
man's dominion is lost, and this world is really under the dominion of that foul serpent, of whom the New Testament gives indication, we're to see the adversary there. We're to see the adversary of God and the adversary of man, and of course that word adversary is a word that, that, that Satan is uh, actually the meaning of. The Satan is the adversary. And what God says right at the, uh, upon the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, a lot of people call this the proto-evangelium, that's the first proclamation of the gospel, the evangelium or the evangel. Um, and um, what God says here in this first announcement of the good news, the first announcement of the gospel God says in verse 15, I will put enmity, and he's addressing the serpent. And in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, and verse 15 says to the serpent, I will put enmity, I will put hostility, I will break up this unholy alliance that has come to exist between the woman who obeyed, obeyed the word of the serpent, and um, I will break that up. I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman first. First, a woman. Uh, God's saying, I'm going to deliver Eve out of the clutches of this uh, evil, unclean serpent who led her astray. And um, then he says, and I will also put this enmity, not just between the woman and the serpent, but between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. How does the serpent have offspring? I mean, it's just a bunch of snakes? Well, again, if Satan is behind this whole matter of the temptation and of the fall of man, uh, the Bible tells us there are those who are in league with the devil in terms of spiritual affinity. That Satan has a descendancy. Satan has children. Jesus in John chapter 8 says to the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil. The desires of your father, it is your will to do. New Testament speaks about the children of God and the children of the devil. The devil has his children. Um, uh, John the Baptist spoke to the Jews in John Luke 3 and Matthew 3, and he called them a brood of vipers. A brood of vipers. You're, you're an offspring of snakes. Uh, you're the willing bond slaves of the devil. And God says, I'm going to take the devil's brood, his descendancy, those who are devoted to him and following him and have spiritual likeness to him and affinity towards him and I will put enmity between that group of people and the seed of the woman. Now who is the seed of the woman? Well if God has redeemed Eve in terms of making up the unholy alliance she had with the devil and obeying him and now Eve is now going to obey God well it's those who follow in Eve's path. Um, It's interesting, the first saved person seems to be the woman, not the man. The first saved person seems to be Eve. And if Eve is this first saved person, um, then we are her her spiritual offspring in in that sense. That uh, we follow the faith of Mother Eve in terms of obeying God and following God. We're no longer in Adam. We're no longer in Adam. We're in the sense in which we're in Eve in terms of just seeing her as uh, the the, the one who heads up uh, the redeemed. It seems to me that's what's being said here. It doesn't seem like Adam is saved. It doesn't seem... I mean, we're in Adam, and that means we're fallen. That means we're under wrath. That means we're sinful. That means we're rebels in Adam. In Adam, all die. 
In Christ, all will be made alive. But there is a place where we can see we're in Eve. We're in Eve as the first believer, as one who had that unholy alliance with the devil, busted up by God's grace. And she becomes God's servant, and we become the children of the woman. Of course, we're the seed of the woman naturally in terms of birth. We're all Eve's our mother in that sense, but there's also our spiritual mother in, in that sense. And there's that distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent really going all throughout Scripture. The godly and the ungodly, the worshipers of God and those that do not worship God, um, the children of God, the children of the devil. Uh, and that is the basic enmity that exists in the world. And then from that seed of the woman, there comes one who is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Deal with the serpent that death blow. You see the last part of that in verse 15. Um, he, there's a singular one, there's a singular person from a seed, that's many descendants who are uh, spiritual descendants of the woman, there is this one, this singular one, who is of the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head. And you see that pictured lots of times. I mean, think of, think of the classic story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath is something that every kid knows that's ever been to Sunday school. Um, and the story of David and Goliath has David coming out from the nation of Israel as the great champion of Israel to face Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And you know, he says, uh, you know, he comes out against him in the name of the God of Israel. He is the representative of the seed of the righteous, of, of, of the woman, the seed of the righteous coming against the seed of the serpent. And there is this warfare that's going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. There is this enmity. There is this opposition. And what does David do? Well, David takes a sling, puts it into his, a stone, puts it into his sling. And what does he do? He crushes the the head of the representative of the armies of the Philistine. Uh, who represent the seed of the woman. And there's a sense in which, in that story that's being told of David and Goliath, the serpent's head is crushed. Right in the head. What's that meant to say? Well, again, I rather think that if you think of Goliath as he would come out in a, 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 under the Palestinian sun, dressed in what's described as an armor of mail, uh, which is usually made of bronze or copper, that would have been looking pretty serpent-like, <laughs> just in, in terms of the, the male, the male uh, I mean, you've seen copper snakes and things like that, would have, would have looked very serpent-like. And that serpent is destroyed by the champion of Israel, the one who comes, the singular one who destroys the serpent. And David becomes the king, Right? David becomes the king. He's the one who's elevated to the place of kingship in Israel. And not only is he the king, he is the ideal king. He is the king after God's own heart. Now this is important because there's a real sense in which the story of the Old Testament as it's given to us is awaiting David. It's awaiting the ideal king because man who had dominion lost dominion and it needs to be restored. And it needs to be restored uh, through a coming king. The expectation of a coming king. Now when you think about the story that's told to us from Genesis um, uh, 1 to 3 on, uh, you have not just the seed of the woman 
through whom the, the, the champion will come to, who will destroy the devil. But you have the seed concept that gets narrowed. It first gets narrowed in, um, well, let's see, there seems to be some anticipation that there was expectation that a seed would come quite quickly. There seems to be some expectation for that when Adam knew his wife again in uh, chapter 4 and verse 25 of Genesis. It says, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another seed instead of Abel. Cain killed him. And there was this expectation of, again, the seed. The seed that God promised that would bruise the serpent's head. Maybe it's this new child that's born. There's a sense in which every mother in Israel had said had messianic expectations for her sons. That this would be the Messiah. That this would be the one who would born, be born uh, to bring uh, the destruction of, of evil. The destruction of the enemy. The destruction of the Satan. Um, and there may have been that expectation that Eve has. Uh, there's also the picture of the birth of Noah. In, um, uh, later on in um, chapter 5 and verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. And that's part of the curse that was placed upon mankind because of sin in Genesis 3. So what do you think Lamech is thinking? Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the son that's going to bring deliverance. Maybe this is the son that's going to restore humanity to its place of dominion once again. But no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Enos and it wasn't Noah. Um, we come to Genesis chapter 12 and you have Abram, or comes Abraham, and, and God renews the blessing with Abraham. Remember, God blessed him and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Well, God renews the blessing to Abraham. Five times God speaks of the blessing that would come to Abraham in chapter 12. And I think there's five times that the word blessing is used in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. So I think it's meant to be something of a parallel. God's blessing is now going to be restored with respect to Abram. Um, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then as you read the story of Abraham, what is it? Well, it's a son, it's a descendant, it's a seed. The seed of Abraham will come and be the means through which the world will receive the blessing, the blessing that was lost at creation. The blessing that was lost through sin, the blessing of kingship and dominion that was lost through sin, will be realized through the seed of Abraham. So somebody's coming from Abraham's descendancy to be the one who will again be the ruler in Israel, who will restore the dominion, bring us back to God, bring us back to the blessings. And so it's expected that, again, the idea of the seed of the woman... That's now humanity in general. Now it gets limited to the seed of Abraham. It's a descendant of Abraham that we're to be looking for. And then, of course, with respect to David, the Davidic covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 7 says it's David's seed that will always reign. There'll be kingdom and kingship always among David's descendants. But now the story of David becomes very important and very interesting because in a real sense, the the, the narrative of the, of, of the historical books of the Bible are expecting David. There's an expectation of the restoration of kingdom, of kingship. 
And it's going to come from the seed of the woman. It's going to come from the seed of Abraham. But yet there is no king in Israel. Remember that? Again, they, they go out down into Egypt. They're under the dominion of Pharaoh the king, killing their kids. I mean, just the epitome of, of the evil that sin brings into the world is seen in human dominion. The, the dominion that ought to have been the dominion of, of righteousness and justice and goodness and truth and beauty and all the rest that was God's ideal now is found in empires like Egypt that kills the children of the Israelites and, and enslaves them, puts them in chains. That's what dominion in sin is like. It's like Pharaoh in Egypt. It's like the Assyrians taking the northern kingdom captive. And like the Babylonians that will later take them captive. It's the evil of human empire. It's the evil of Rome coming against the church and coming against the people of God. It's the evil of human empire. But human empire under dominion of sin is now going to be transplanted by a greater king. And a greater kingdom. And that's going to come in the ideal king that David represents. That David typifies. See all with me? The whole picture is we're expecting a king. A king who will come. A king who comes to reign. And really you don't understand Christmas unless you see this. Unless you see this is what the whole Old Testament is leading up to. The birth of Jesus doesn't come out of nothing. It comes out of this Old Testament picture expecting the coming of the king. The king who would be the ideal king. The king who would be like David. And again you see the picture of human empire and Pharaoh. But you also see what happens without a king in the history of Israel. Because when you read the entry into the land of promise in the book of Joshua, the settlement of the land, and you read then in the book of Judges about how um, disobedience on the part of the nation happened over and over and over again. You had this picture of um, Israel's rebellion. They would rebel against the Lord their God. And then after rebellion would come uh, some foreign rule, uh, some oppressor, whether it was the Midianites or the, you know, whatever the nation was that would then come and rule over them and bring an oppressive rule. They would take their harvest, they would take their crops, they would put them under, the, under their subjection. And, and then they cry out to God and there would be repentance. And then after repentance, there would be the raising up of, a, of the deliverer, a judge, who would come and then bring uh, restoration and uh, recovery or redemption. So that was a pattern that would go on. And that pattern that went on of rebellion, a foreign rule, uh, followed by repentance, followed by a judge that would be raised up and bring repentance. As you read the book of Judges, every rebellion was worse than the last. And then every deliverer would seem to be worse than the last. Till you come to Samson. I mean, Samson's not an example of a godly man. He's not an example of the sort of man that you would set forth as, uh, here's the ideal deliverer. And so you see the picture getting worse and worse and worse. Sin doesn't heal the human condition. It only worsens the human condition. It doesn't get better. Without the intervention of God and his grace, things don't get better on their own. I think that's the picture of what's going on here. And one of the things that's said in the book of the Judges is that every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. 
Every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. And he gave the explanation as to why that condition existed. It said because there was no king in Israel. There was no king. Absent a king, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And of course, the lead up to this is ultimately David. Again, you have the book of Ruth that's sandwiched in from Judges uh, before, the, before, before 1 Samuel. And, and, and what is... Um, Judges, uh, what is Ruth all about? Well, it's the way in which Naomi, uh, because of a famine, went into Moab and brought back a Moabitess woman, a foreign woman, who then is married by Boaz, and they have a child. And I think the name of the first child was Salmon, and then there was um, um, Obed, then there was Jesse, and then there's David. It's the, it's the family of David. It's how David's grandmother, great-grandmother, was a Moabitess woman. God brought a foreigner into Israel uh, to demonstrate that there was going to come a king that was going to rule the nations, not just a king that was an Israeli king. I mean, David was an Israeli king, but ultimately the idea is that a king that would rule the nations. And so you have in Jesus' own genealogy, you have four women that were all foreign women. Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of uh, Uriah the Hittite, and the fourth one was um, Rahab. Rahab, all those were foreign women. And again, those were the mothers, the grandmothers in the line of uh, the king that would come ultimately to rule the nations. But David was to be the ideal king. And in David, this idea of the seed that was first the seed of the woman, then became the seed of Abraham, now becomes the seed of David. It's going to be a descendant of David that's going to come and be the king who would bring restoration. And it's at that point where you have the messianic words that we find in Isaiah. Um, And again, uh, I don't know really where to take this. I'm I'm, I'm intending at Christmas to actually preach much through the section of what's really the Emmanuel section of the book of Isaiah. And the Emmanuel section begins in chapter 7. And I want to turn you there just, just briefly. Again, the whole setup is we need a king. We need a king that's David, that'll be ultimately David as the ideal king. And then after David dies, you have a, a descendants that come and rule over Israel. Solomon was, well... A troubled man in some ways, but also a man that asked God to give him wisdom to rule the nation well and right. And Solomon, of course, attributed the authorship of the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and the Ecclesiastes. Just, you know, he's, 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 he's a, a real mixture of good and evil, of, 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 of compromise and yet faithfulness on, on the other hand. But then his son Rehoboam is, is absolutely a fool. And it's through him that ten tribes revolt from the rule of the Davidic throne. And again, we're waiting for this king. We're waiting for this wonderful king that will come and restore things. And it just seems that things get worse and worse and worse in the life of the nation of Israel. Enter Isaiah, 8th century B.C. There's a king on the throne of Judah, the son of David. His name is Ahaz. And in the days of Ahaz, you have the threat of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the great empire 
uh, that's going to eat up everything in its path. It's going to take a dominion, ultimately take the northern kingdom of Israel into its orbit of influence and bring the destruction of the northern kingdom. It's going to take Syria. It's going to take everything in its path. It's going to come right up to the gates of Jerusalem. But in those days that all this is happening, the northern kingdom still exists, the kingdom of Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim, um, it still exists, and it's looking to ward off the oncoming Assyrians. What are, the, what are we going to do to fight against the Assyrians? Well, we're going to form an alliance with our neighbors, is what they basically say. And so you find an alliance that exists in the days of Ahaz, Isaiah, Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the day of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, that's the, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, He's reigning in Judah, the southern kingdom. You have Rezin, the king of Syria, that's to the north. Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, that's also, that's the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. So you have the northern ten tribes entering into an alliance with Syria, which is to their north. And they get into an alliance and they come up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Northern kingdom, along with the Syrians, are looking to wage war against Ahaz and his kingdom. But they couldn't mount an attack against it. And then notice what it says. It doesn't say Ahaz alone. It says, when the house of David was told. We're reminded here. We're dealing with David's house. We're dealing with David's descendant that's ruling in Judah. And so that's mentioned a couple of times. House of David. House of David. It's not often said that it's the house of David. But here we're reminded it's the house of David. We're thinking of Davidic kings. We're thinking of God's promise to David. There's not going to lack... A king upon the th- your throne. God's given promise. The seed's going to come through David. Now Ahaz's kingdom is being threatened by the Israel and the Syrians to his north who are in, um, in a confederacy against him. And so when the house of David was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. We're doomed. We're not going to. We're not going to be able to withstand. Um, and yet, it's told that they were not able to mount an attack against them. So, evidently, something's hindering this confederacy of these northern peoples from destroying the southern kingdom. But what God does at that point, when the heart of Ahaz is totally distressed, when the people are shaking like trees of the forest, uh, God sends Ahaz. Go out to meet, uh, I'm sorry, sends Isaiah to go meet with Ahaz in verse 3. You and Shear Jashib, your son. That's one of uh, Isaiah's sons that have uh, uh, these interesting names. Uh, This name, Shear Jashib, means a remnant shall return. So it's anticipating a a captivity uh, from which there's going to be a a return. There's going to be a remnant, but that's still to the future. That's still not now. And yet, Ahab's son has a name that applies to a future thing God's going to do. Interesting. But you have Isaiah going out, meeting with Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. What's that all about? Well, it's the place where the water supply for Judah was to be found. And Ahaz the king, fearing this attack from the north, has gone out of the city has gone out to the place where the water supply that the city's dependent upon to make certain that doesn't get attacked. 
If you can attack a city, you'd probably go after the water supply first. Pollute their water supply and kill them that way. And so he's out there protecting it, being like what a good king does. And you ought to say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. The fierce anger of Rezin in Syria, the son of Ramalia, uh, again the northern king and the Syrian king. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah, terrify it, let us conquer it for ourselves. Set up the son of Tabia, we don't know who he is, but he was some guy that the Syrians and the, 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 the northern kingdom wanted to make their puppet king in Judah, that they could control, that they would be in alliance with them against the greater threat, they thought, of the Assyrians. So we'll set up a Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. That's God's word to Ahaz. It's not going to stand. This confederacy to the north, it will not stand. It will not come to pass. The head of Syria is Damascus, that's their capital city. The head of Damascus is Rezin, that's their king. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. They won't even exist. The Assyrians will come and bring them into captivity, will disperse them among the nations, and you won't even be, be able to find a descendant of Dan. Who's of the tribe of Dan today? Well, we don't know. Who's of the tribe of any of those uh, northern tribes? Well, we simply don't know. They were destroyed. They're called the lost tribes of the house of Israel uh, because of what the Assyrians did in dispersing their captive peoples all through the different lands and then bringing into, bringing into Samaria uh, a people from other conquered places. That's what they would do. Total disruption to people's identities. Taking them out of their land. Bringing them to lose their identities. Making them part of other, other nations. That's what the Assyrian policy was. And so Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. They won't even be a people any longer. The head of Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom, is Samaria. That's their capital city. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. That's their king. And um, if you're not firm in faith, Ahaz, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz, you're the king of Judah. You're the son of David. You're supposed to be a king after God's own heart. You're supposed to trust in Yahweh. Your God. Your confidence is not in any confederacies you're looking to make with other nations, which is what Ahaz really sought to do. Uh, the book of First Kings tells us he went to uh, Nineveh, uh, the head of the Assyrian um, uh, nation, the, their capital city, and he uh, brought back an altar from the Assyrians, and he brought it into the worship of God. He, this was an evil man. This was a wicked king. This was an unbelieving king. And Ahaz is calling him to faith. He's calling him back to the God of Israel. He's calling them back to trusting in the God of their father David. If you will not be firm in faith, you're not firm at all. Then Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And that's just a lot of... um, Holy sounding language to disguise the very fact Ahaz did not want any part of the trust of, of, of Yahweh. He knew a better way than to make God his trust. He was going to find out a better way to secure his kingdom than to rest upon the promises of God. He was not going to be a faithful Davidic king at all. He simply refused even God's own promise. Put me to the test, God says. I'll demonstrate my love. I'll demonstrate my goodwill. I'll demonstrate my intentions 
to make the throne of your father David secure in your reign and in all the reigns that are to come. The day has declined. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And so God's response is this. He says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what's the sign? Well, the sign is that the house of David will remain. That David's house will not be destroyed. That God's promise to David will be fulfilled. Well, how is God's promise to David going to be fulfilled? Well, God says it's going to be in the birth of this one who is born of a virgin. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Here's the fulfillment of the promise. The promise is Emmanuel. The promise is God with us. His promise is an incarnation. The promise is a virgin birth. The promise is a son who will fulfill the Davidic promise who will bring the the hope of restoration of kingship back to its full rights. And this is the king that's going to be described later on in chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. On the throne of his father David. He will reign. The Davidic throne will be secured in the person of the virgin-born child. It will be in the person of the Emmanuel. My point to you is the whole Old Testament is looking to the king. The kingship was lost through sin. The kingship that we were created to know and enjoy as human beings made in the image of God is lost to us through sin. But that's not going to stand. God's going to restore kingship. But that kingdom was through the king that was the ideal king, David, the son of David, that ultimately will be fulfilled in the virgin-born child. And though the northern kingdom is going to be taken into captivity, though the southern kingdom also is going to be taken into captivity, though in the days of Jeremiah you have the final Davidic king that exists, Zedekiah, taken into captivity, his eyes plucked out, and David's house seems to have fallen. Yet God does not forsake his promises. And the promise is not something that's contemporary with Ahaz. The promise is not something that's contemporary with any Old Testament figure. The promise is the promise that will be fulfilled when the virgin conceives. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 1. When Joseph is in this midst, midst of a perplexity, he's betrothed to Mary. She's been found with child. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Well, an angel comes and says, Fear not. Fear not, Joseph. To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's not been an immoral woman. She's not been an unfaithful woman. You don't need to put her away. You need to be a faithful Davidic son of David, like, like as you are. And trust in the Lord. Take Mary to be your wife. That which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. And this is done to, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Saying a virgin shall conceive and bear forth a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. And the angel of course tells Joseph one other thing. That his name is not only Emmanuel, God with us. I mean that's his identity. He's the incarnate God. The God of Israel come in human flesh. But not only so, he's Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus, 
For that name means Yahweh our Savior. For it is He who will save His people from their sins. And I would say not only save His people from their sins, but also to restore creation to His rights. To bring in this new creation. To bring in this new creation where again there's dominion. Where Jesus Himself reigns, but not alone. Because we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And we've been redeemed to reign along with Him. We've been redeemed to enter into a new heavens and new earth in which Lordship is rightly restored to a redeemed humanity who will live in God's presence and further God's purposes and will in whatever way that's going to be, in ways unknown to us, but ways that I think will be very good and, and, and soul-satisfying and enriching uh, unto the endless ages of eternity in a restored creation. In a creation, once again, that's brought to its original plan and purpose of a creation in which human beings would be blessed of God, fruitful, will have multiplied through the earth, a population that will teem and abound, in a multitude that no man can number, from every kindred, tongue, and tribe, they will enter into that blessed city, where we will be forever with the Lord, and we will serve Him with the fullness of the blessings of life and life eternal in his presence. And folks, that's the Christmas story. It doesn't begin with Luke 1 or Matthew 1. It begins in Genesis. And it begins with the expectation of the Redeemer, of the one who would be the Lord, who will restore kingship. Because God is to be king, not only in heaven, but on earth as well. On earth, as it is in heaven, God's kingdom will come. That's why the ultimate destiny is not some disembodied state where we're all, you know, strumming on uh, harps on clouds. (laughs) It's a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because that's God's purpose. That His name would be hallowed, His kingdom would come, His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will be done when the king returns and the kingdom is consummated in his presence in a new order in which he will, he will restore creation to its rights in that eternal state. Well, I hope this has been helpful. I know it's been kind of scattered. It's the big picture. But man, does it explain a lot. You get a sight of that big picture, it becomes explanatory of almost everything you read about in the Bible. It's all bringing us back to these realities. May God be pleased to bless these thoughts. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can just take a step back and look at the big picture of the revelation you've given of yourself and of your will and purposes in creation. The things that happened as a result of sin coming into the world and what you in Jesus will do to restore the world to its rights. We thank you. We can think upon these things and give us understanding in them. Help us to see just how these things become keys that just unlock so much and help us to explain so much of reality as it is and just the things we read about in your own blessed and holy word. So give us understanding as we consider these matters. And thank you, Lord, for the depths and the riches and the beauty and the fullness and sufficiency of your own word. So we ask you'd hear us as we come to you 
In Jesus' name, amen.